0: Amen. Come on. You excited to be at church today? Come on. It's a good day to be in the house of God. Yeah. I'm thankful to be here. And we are gonna continue our Philippians series today. So turn with me to chapter three of Philippians. We've been moving through uh, this series this summer. And as you're turning, just wanna say, if you're new with us, thanks for being here today. It's such an honor uh, to have you in the house with us. We consider it a privilege to host you. So thanks for being here. We pray that you would feel warmly welcomed and that you would encounter the love of God. That's our earnest desire for you. So, so that's what we're praying for. But, but last week we finished up chapter two of the book of Philippians where Paul, he, he holds up Timothy and Epaph, Epaphroditus, <laughs> that's my joke, you didn't think it was funny, Anyways, Epaphroditus <laughs> as people who live like Jesus, right? These were two examples of people who set aside their own interests and they laid down their life for Jesus and his church and we were inspired to follow in their footsteps and and to be servants. We were, Or actually, uh, Noah called us to to follow their example, right? To be like Epap, to be like Timothy. We're gonna get t-shirts that say be like Epap here at St. (laughs) Church. But, uh, But just after honoring these men, Paul then picks it up in chapter three. So he says this, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, and to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the King. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish or trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in the Messiah, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Come on, somebody that'll preach. I'm ready to preach this word this morning. Come on, that's good. We can just read that and say amen and go off. All right, so this, uh, this week's sermon title is The Prize, The Prize. Let's pray and we'll jump in. So Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example, his witness, and the fact that, uh, the fact that you preserved his words for us. And God, I pray this morning that this word would come to life and that every heart would be, be pushed onwards towards you in this room. So God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so things have been a little crazy around our house lately. It's one of those seasons where the to-do list keeps growing. And nothing gets taken off of it. <laughs> so, so one of the things that's been hard is that keeping our house clean. We have three kids under five. We have another one coming next month. Yes, we're crazy. Uh, so because of this, obviously, it's hard to keep our house clean despite our best efforts. And the other night, Emily and I had something going on in the evening, so we had a babysitter coming over to watch our kids. And we had like 20 minutes between the time where we got home and where the babysitter got to the house, and our basement was trashed with toys. It's like toy land. There's lots of toys down there. And Emily's like, we gotta get that basement picked up before the babysitter gets here. She's like, we gotta, it's gotta be cleaner than what it is. And she, and she tried to enlist some help. She said, Jane, who's our four-year-old, she said, Jane, you wanna come help me? And Jane starts moaning. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. And I'm laying on the couch. I don't know why I was on the couch. Forgive me for that. But uh, so, and I say to Jane, <laughs> I say to Jane, I say, how about we give you a sucker? And she's like, what kind of sucker? And she said, can I have a blow pop? I said, you sure can. And then she jumped up. She said, I'm ready. She went from moaning on the ground and so tired, you can't do it, to, hey, I'll do anything for that blow pop, right? She, she was motivated, right? So, so motivated people are capable of great things. They are, are capable of doing crazy things, even at great personal cost to themselves because they have a goal in mind, right? I, I, I think of Thomas Jefferson, and the founding fathers, they had this goal of having an independent United States, and this motivated them to pen the Declaration of Independence and essentially ask for war with the most powerful empire on the earth. I think of Mother Teresa, who had the motivation of making an eternal difference in lives in India, one life at a time, right, in Calcutta, and, and this caused her to lay her life down and to serve amongst the poorest of the poor. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. who had a dream that his four little children would one day live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. And this motivated him to, well, to eventually give up his life but to face hatred and opposition. He had a dream and that pushed him, right? Okay, so here's the thing. Motivated people change the world. And the world, it truly runs on people who are motivated, people who have a fire in their belly, okay? So with that in mind, are you motivated If so, by what? Maybe it's a blow pop for you this morning. Like, I just want a blow pop after church. Right, you told yourself, if I go to church today, I'm getting a blow pop. So that's why I'm going to church, I'm kidding. In the book of Philippians, Paul has shown himself to be a man with fire in his heart, right? He had motivation. He was one of the most motivated, if not the most motivated people to ever live. He faced prison, intense suffering, and even death because of his motivation. He tells us this in verse 14 of chapter three. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize for you know, the motivation of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He, he pressed on in the midst of opposition because of the prize of Jesus. Jesus was his motivation. He wasn't trying to earn anything from Jesus, but he was just so smitten by him. He was in love with him. And Jesus was the true prize and desire of his heart. And for those of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who have professed loyalty to him, he should be our prize. Our entire life should orient around knowing him and helping other people know him. The prize of Jesus should be fuel that that motivates us to live lives of crazy love for him and people. But sadly, this is not always the case. Instead of Jesus being the prize of our lives, and instead of him motivating us to lay down our lives for his glory, we're often caught up with other things. Other things become the prize of our lives and we're half-hearted in our love for him. So the thing I wanna consider this morning is what would our lives look like if Jesus was truly our prize, right? Not just our ticket to heaven, right? Not just our for, our forgiveness, but our prize. What would our lives look like? Here in chapter three, Paul beautifully portrays what our lives look like when Jesus is our prize through his own example, right? He, he shows us through his example what it would look like if Jesus was our prize. As I worked through this passage this week and as I saw his heart for Jesus, my heart burned. I wanna be like Paul and my heart also felt convicted because I'm often not like Paul, right? I'm often half-hearted. But I want Jesus to be my prize and I want him to be your prize. And to that end, I just wanna walk through it. And point out some of the different characteristics of what our lives will look like when he's our prize. As we do, for those of us who have already said, hey, I'm I'm following Jesus, I want to encourage you to examine your life and see if it lines up. And for those who don't follow Jesus yet, I want you to consider what your life would look like, how beautiful your life would be if you would just make Jesus your prize. So with that in mind, let's look at verse one. We're gonna work through every verse. So it says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Okay, so Paul, he repeatedly throughout this letter calls the Philippians to rejoice in Jesus. As we've seen, joy is the primary theme of this letter. For Paul, following Jesus brought him so much joy and he wanted the Philippians to share in that joy. And when he calls the church to rejoice in the Lord, he's calling them to praise and worship. He's joining with the psalmists of the Old Testament and calling them to pour out their their love for Jesus in song and prayer, even when they're not feeling it. He's calling them to, in action, rejoice. And when he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, this literally means I do not hesitate to or to write these same things to you. He's emphasizing that he's aware that he's repeating himself and he's not sorry about it. Paul desperately wants them to rejoice in Jesus. It's as if he sees himself as a worship leader in this letter. He's calling them, get your eyes off your situation and get them up on Jesus. Sometimes we have to choose to praise Jesus even when things aren't going very well in our lives. We have to train our hearts to rejoice. We have to command them to rejoice. If we follow our feelings, we won't always be able to rejoice in the Lord like Paul calls us to. But he calls us to get above our feelings and to choose to live lives of rejoicing. Choose. And this is partly why Sunday mornings are so important here. By coming here, we're choosing to worship Jesus no matter what's going on in our world. And we're training our hearts to find joy in him by being with the people of God and declaring who Jesus is together as we worship. Okay, so notice Paul then says, he says, it's safe for you. Okay, so what does he mean by that? What's he mean by, or by telling you to rejoice again is safe for you? Well, this phrase can mean a variety of things, but uh, the most likely meaning is stability. Okay, so rejoicing in Jesus will make the Philippians stable. If they can continue to rejoice in Jesus in the midst of their suffering, they will be able to stand firm in the Lord. And this reminds me of what the book of Nehemiah says. Nehemiah, it says this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Praising Jesus and finding joy in him gives us strength and stability. If you're struggling to persevere in your faith, if you feel like your heart it's half-hearted in it's love for Jesus. If you're struggling to stay strong, it might be that you're not choosing to praise him enough. In Psalm 57, the psalmist says this. He says, my heart, O oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. I will. It's not a question. I'm gonna sing. Awake, my soul. Wake up. Get up, soul. Wake up, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, not just when I got the the butterflies in the chest, right, In in the belly. Sometimes we have to call our souls to get out of bed. Come on, somebody, right? We have to command our souls to be steadfast. They're worshiping Jesus in the midst of the storm. We have to choose to praise God despite our circumstances. And when we do this, the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And for Paul, his commitment to rejoicing in Jesus, it enabled him to endure and to press on. Because Jesus was the true prize of his life, he praised him no matter what was going on. And this gave him strength. Okay, so here's the thing. When Jesus is our prize, we praise him and find our strength in him no matter what's going on. And when Jesus is our prize, we rejoice in him even when we're not feeling it because he's worthy. Come on, come on. You're gonna get me going today. You're back. You're back from vacation. You're gonna get me going. All right, let's go. <laughs> I'm thankful. All right. So, here's the thing. I forget where I was. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. We rejoice in him because he's worthy, and it's good for us. It's good for you to not give into your feelings all the time. And to say you are worthy, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna look at you, I'm gonna praise you no matter what I'm facing. As we do this, it's interesting, it gives us strength and it helps us to keep Jesus as the prize of our lives. It's like the cycle. Much of our Christian life and stability in Jesus depends upon our commitment to worship. And we see another piece of what our life looks like when Jesus is our prize in verses two through six. There's a lot to unpack here, so bear with me. This could be its own sermon, but I'm gonna go fast through it. Verse two, he says look out for the dogs. And look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. Okay, so Paul, he's calling them to watch out for some nasty people. Right? He calls them dogs and evildoers and those who who mutilate the flesh. And by calling them these names, he he's clearly pointing to teachers who who taught that they had to be circumcised and follow Jewish rituals to follow Jesus. He calls them dogs. He's actually being ironic by calling them dogs. Because Uh, Jews at this time had a tendency to call Gentiles, who are non-Jews, they had a tendency to call them dogs. And dogs were not lovable pets, but they were viewed with contempt in this culture, as they would eat anything, including dead animals and their own vomit. Yesterday, my son puked and my cat tried cleaning it up. (laughs) So there you go. There's that little nugget. I don't know why I said that. Anyways, (laughs) See, that's what my house is like, right? There's kids puking, cats eating puke, it's fun. Anyways, if you want our cats, let us know. Let us know. Anyways, so we've been trying to find new owners for them for a while, but uh, they're great cats. Eight and seven years old, brothers, beautiful. Chubby, but beautiful. So anyways, Paul actually, so Paul boldly says that the actual dogs are not the Gentiles who have turned to Jesus or, or Gentiles in general, but they are these Judaizers who make it hard for other people to turn to Jesus. By heaping the burden of circumcision, and men, you know that'd be a burden as an adult, right? Anyways, a burden of circumcision and Jewish rituals on these Gentile Christians, they were putting a barrier between these Gentiles and God. And Paul is saying, anyone who adds rituals to the cross as a requirement to be saved are dogs. And they weren't just dogs, they're evildoers, because they're turning these converts away from total reliance on Christ and trying to get them to rely on their own abilities, on their own rituals, their own works. And this is evil, in Paul's mind. This is evil to try to get people to rely on themselves. He then calls them those who who mutilate the flesh because they taught that you had to be circumcised to be saved. If you didn't know, circumcision was a sign in the Old Testament of the Jewish people's covenant with God, and like baptism for Jesus' followers, it was a sign that they were God's people. But these teachers, they are missing the point of circumcision. Even in the law and the prophets, they agree that circumcision doesn't save you, but it's just a sign of the promise of God, the fact that they are God's people. It doesn't save. And we're not saved by any, any ritual. We're not saved by circumcision, but we're saved by Jesus alone. And the true circumcision are those who, who have come to faith in Christ. Paul says this in, in verse three, for we are the circumcision who, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, here's the thing. Those who worship by the Holy Spirit, those who who boast in Christ alone, those who put, put no confidence in the flesh, they are the true circumcision. Their hearts have been circumcised. And we're not saved by ethnicity or by good deeds, but by Jesus alone. And Paul then emphasizes this point by pointing to his Own life and all the things that he had achieved. And he says, even all the things I have achieved won't save me. He says this in verse uh, four through six. He says, though I myself have have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so Paul, he had so many reasons uh, to boast in the flesh. However, even he is saying, I can't find salvation there and and none of these things can save me. And this shows us the the second thing that happens when Jesus is our prize. When Jesus is our prize, we trust in him alone, right? We don't trust in our background. We don't trust in our rituals or our behavior. We don't find confidence in good works or church attendance or ethnicity or heritage. And while all these things can be good, we don't trust in these things to save us. And the only one who's capable of saving us is Jesus the Messiah, right? He's where all of our confidence, he's where all of our trust has to be. And then Paul then emphasizes this point in verse 7 by actually using some business accounting terms, which my wife is an accountant, so I enjoyed learning about accounting this week in my sermon study. It says this in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so it's as if in verse 5 and 6, he he's counting up all his assets on a net worth balance sheet. He's counting them all up, and it's impressive. Man, his net worth is phenomenal. He had an amazing spiritual net worth. But then in verse seven, he counts all these things as a loss. It's as if he strikes through them all and then moves them to the liability side. Because of Christ, all of his human achievements, anything that that could try to get his trust, they had become liabilities. Anything that could be boasted in, or trusted in other than Jesus became a loss. The only thing that, became, that can be counted as an asset is Christ. Jesus saves, nothing else. And this should give us profound hope when we miss the mark. I don't know about you, but I miss the mark once in a while. Right? The holiness uh, that God calls us to is weighty. It's a high calling. right? Jesus, he doesn't lower the calling for holiness. In fact, as new covenant people, we're called even higher than the old covenant people. However, we have hope uh, for, for when we don't live up to that calling, because when we fail, God doesn't smite us, right? He doesn't kick us out of his family. Instead, he sees Jesus even when we fail. He sees the perfect life and the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and he pours out grace on us even at our worst moments. Our hope for salvation is in Christ alone. His blood is enough. Don't get me started on the blood. His blood is enough. Even our most righteous acts our filthy rags. They account for nothing in terms of salvation. When Jesus is our prize, we find all of our hope, all of our hope for salvation is in him. It's not in ourselves. And Paul then continues with There continues with this theme of gains and losses in verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, as garbage, as trash in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, so Paul says that compared to being in relationship with Jesus or compared to knowing him, all the other stuff, all the other things are a loss. Everything he's achieved in life, everything that's competed for his allegiance is nothing compared to Jesus, the Messiah. Everything that gave Paul a reason to boast in his life has no value to him now. His goal is one thing now, is to know Jesus. His allegiance is to Jesus. Christ is superior to all else. J. Walter Hansen said this in his commentary. He's, he said, when you put the value of knowing Christ on one side of the balance scale and everything else on the other side, everything else has no value whatsoever compared to their surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When Paul came into relationship with Jesus, he submitted his whole self to Jesus. And he had to lose a lot to follow Jesus, a lot more than we have to lose. Just as Jesus didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, as we talked about in in chapter two, but he emptied himself by becoming a servant, when Paul came to faith in Christ, he emptied himself. He stopped taking pride in his worldly achievements and instead found his righteousness in Jesus alone. His strongest desire shifted to knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He just wanted Jesus. That's all he wanted at this point. I want Christ I think Paul would have loved the famous hymn that was written by African-American slaves during the 19th century. Are They saying this, in the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Come on, give me Jesus. You may have all this world. You know, for those slaves, this world may really stink. You can have all of it, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, right? This was Paul's heart compared to knowing Jesus. He didn't care about anything else comparatively, right? He cared about other things, but comparatively, he didn't care about other stuff. I think he also would have loved this famous hymn from 1922. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Come on, look upon or look full in his wonderful face. And as you do, the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. For Paul, he lived this out. The things of earth had grown strangely dim compared to knowing Jesus and looking at his beautiful face. I think a lot of our problem in 2023 is the things of earth are so bright. Where's Jesus? The things of earth got to grow dim. Paul's vigor and passion for Jesus would have been greatly encouraging to the Philippian Christians. Right? They were in conflict with both their Roman and their Jewish neighbors, and they had to suffer hardship for the gospel. But Paul, he's saying, Guys, it's worth it. It's worth it. Anything that stands in the way of knowing Jesus is trash. And this shows us the third characteristic of those who who make Jesus the prize of their hearts. When Jesus is our prize, we desperately want to know him. We're hungry to know him. And we count everything as loss that that comes up against Jesus. We remove any barrier to knowing him. We don't just remove the bad things, right? Like I gotta get into heaven, gotta remove the bad things. No, instead we make sure that the good things in our life don't become God things in our life. And that could include friends or, or family members who come up against Jesus or our career our achievements, our pleasure, comfort, sports, hobbies, anything you can think of, we, we count all that stuff as garbage compared to how much we love Jesus. And we make sure that these things don't distract us from Christ. We just, we don't want to just know about Jesus, we want to actually know him intimately. We don't want religion and a ticket to heaven, but instead we want relationship and we want heaven in us now. So Paul, he, he goes on in verse nine to explain how we can know Jesus and have relationship with him by giving us the, or the doctrine of, of justification by faith. Uh, so justification just refers to how we come into right relationship with God. It says this in verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so this is beautiful here. When we put our faith In Jesus, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And we trade places with him. We trade places with the Messiah. He takes our sin. We take on his righteousness. It doesn't make sense, right? His sacrifice gives us the status of being a a member of God's family no matter what our background is. Because Jesus died, we get the opportunity to know God and, and we get the prize of right relationship. Paul wanted to uh, to not just have this positionally, like, hey, I'm going to heaven. He wanted to experience the fullness of relationship with Jesus. He didn't just want relationship with God positionally, but he wanted to do whatever he could to to know Jesus in his fullness now. I want to know him, right? If he would give his life for me and for the world, I want to know this Jesus. In the the back half of verse 10 and verse 11, we see another characteristic of those who, make Jesus their prize. He says it's that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says that he wants to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings, and he wants to, wants to, wants to become like him in his death. Paul was committed to not only following Jesus in victory, in resurrection, we love victory. Easter Sunday, we're like, oh yeah, Good Friday's harder. But he wanted to become like him in suffering, and in his death, he wanted to become like him in his death by dying to his old self and his sinful desires. He he wanted to root that stuff out. He wanted to get that out and, and to live a life of holiness. He wanted to become like Jesus in his death by suffering well for Jesus. He followed Jesus in the midst of hardship, whether that be physical hardship, of persecution, or internal hardship of loving difficult people and pastoring difficult churches. Philippians, or, or the church of Philippi, was like the best one. And they had their struggles, right? He also got the opportunity to become like Jesus by actually dying for him. He died for Christ. He, he gave up his physical life for Jesus, just as Jesus gave up his life for him. Because Jesus was his prize, he was willing to follow him into difficulty, into suffering. Like, whoa, 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 pastor. Here's the thing, when he decided to follow Jesus, he committed to not only following Jesus into the easy things, but the hard things. And the beautiful thing is that that when Jesus is the prize of your life, the hard things become a little bit easier. He helps you carry it as he talks about it in Matthew 11. Right, I don't think that all these things were a burden for Paul. He was glad to do it for Jesus because he actually knew him. The Spirit of God was living in him. He was glad to do it. So here's the thing. Or when Jesus is our prize, we follow him even into hardship. True disciples of Jesus who, who view Jesus as the prize of their hearts follow him both into joy in life and also into sacrifice and death. And they're glad to do it because he is their prize. Okay, so, so when I think about following Jesus into hardship, I think of the Lord of the Rings. Such a good book, movie, deal. I, I think of the relationship of Frodo and Sam. Sam is a boss. Oh, come on, we got to talk about Sam this morning. Right, so Frodo, he, he's about to go on the difficult journey of destroying the ring, and his friend Sam decides to go with him. And when things get difficult, when Frodo tries to get him to turn back, Sam refuses He sticks with his friend every step of the way. He is insanely loyal. At the beginning of the first book, or or the first movie, when he begins to follow Frodo on the journey, he says, Mr. Frodo isn't going anywhere without me. This is the heart of those who prize Jesus. Jesus ain't going anywhere without me. If he had to suffer for the sake of the world, I'll suffer. If he had to give up his life for other people, if he had to love difficult people, I'm gonna do the same thing. He ain't going anywhere I ain't going. Okay, here's the thing. When Jesus is the prize of your life, you follow him into the unknown, right? Both the good and the bad. You're going up uh, the Mount of Doom thing. You're throwing the ring in the, in the thing. So I, I said that well. <laughs> you're doing it, right? Like you're willing. Okay, so Paul makes clear his desire to rejoice in Jesus, to trust in him alone, to, uh, to know him, and even to follow him into hardship. At the end of our passage, we see his heart for for Jesus so clearly, and we see one final characteristic of what it looks like when Jesus is our prize. He says, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straightening forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul never felt like he arrived. Right? He knew he had further and further to go in his adventure with Jesus, and there's always more Jesus to be had. He commits to forgetting the past, his past sins, his past life, and even his past achievements, even his achievements for Jesus, and he strains forward to what's ahead. His mind is set on one thing, Christ. He didn't let his mind dwell on his own achievements, all the churches he planted, all the accolades he had gathered up in heaven. He didn't, he didn't let his mind get focused on those things. He, he He refuses to get distracted. He presses on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, which is communion with Jesus both now and for eternity. That was his goal. And this shows us the last piece of what our lives look like when Jesus is our prize. When Jesus is our prize, we're hungry. We got an appetite for Jesus. We're hungry for more of him. And we never feel like we've arrived, right? We never say I really don't like this phrase, so don't say it around here. We never say, I'm a strong Christian. I just don't like that phrase. What do you mean by that? You're more spiritual or something? I mean, it's weird. It's a weird thing to say. Don't say it ever again. (laughs) Because we don't feel like we've arrived. Come on, we know our stuff. We know our hearts. We know how easily we get distracted. And we know we have not arrived. We're not strong Christians. No. (laughs) Even our most righteous acts are filthy rags compared to Jesus. We know we got further to go. There's more to know of his heart. We want to keep pressing on. And we know if we start getting caught up in how far we've, or how far we've come, if we get you know, caught up in the fact that, hey, I've arrived, then uh, that hunger's going to die. We're going to feel like we've arrived and, and, hey, I know further to go. So anytime those thoughts come in our mind, we just reject them. So, I'm pressing onward. I'm not focused on what I've done. I'm pressing onward towards Jesus. There's more of him to be had. And this hunger for him, it drives us to make sacrifices. It drives us to, uh, to do hard things. It motivates us to, or to do what we gotta do to spend time with Jesus every day. Every day we say, I have an appointment with Jesus. I'm gonna spend time with him because I wanna know him. I, I wanna be in his presence. I'm hungry for more of him. So if I have to get up early or stay up late, if I, if I have to read my Bible on my lunch break, whatever, I'm gonna do what I need to do to spend time with Jesus. It also motivates us to make gathering with God's people a priority, right? We can't think of passing up an opportunity to be in God's presence with God's people. And we know that there's something special that happens when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. I was thinking that during worship this morning. I worship Jesus all week long to, you know, to music, on Apple Music, all that. But there's just something different, right? When you're gathering with other people singing praise to Jesus, there's something different, And if we're hungry for Jesus, we're like, I'm gonna get to church. I wanna be there. I wanna worship with other people. It's like FOMO, right? We don't wanna miss out on that. I I want you to get FOMO for church and for being with God's people. I can't miss out on that. I can't miss out on the yard work day. It's coming up 2024. Be ready for it. (laughs) I'm getting on a tangent now. I'm gonna just leave that alone. All right. Our hunger, it also pushes us to repent of sin. I can't let sin stay in my life. There's no way. There's no way I can sin and then hide it. I need to repent of this. I need this out of me. I don't want this on me. I don't want to give the devil a foothold. I need to repent of my sins to Jesus and to other people. I need to confess to somebody. I want you to be hungry for confession. You're like, that's weird. I know. But if you want to draw near to Jesus, you have to throw that stuff in the past. Say, I need to get free of that. Guys, let's be a church that's hungry for confession and repentance. If I fall short, I got to tell someone. I got to get prayer. I know the truth of James 5, 16, that those who confess their sins to one another and pray for one another are healed. I want healing. I don't want to give the devil a foothold, right? We confess because we're hungry for Jesus. The point is we will stop at nothing to have Jesus. We just want more of him. And here's the thing, when Jesus is your prize, you're going to have tough days. It's not like I wake up every morning like, yeah, come on, right? You're going to have tough days. Everything won't be perfect. You won't always be feeling it. But keep getting back up. Keep pressing in. When you don't want to spend time with Jesus or with community, do it anyways. Because it's good for you. I don't care if you feel like reading the Bible. Open it up every time that I haven't felt like reading the Bible and I've read it, I've never regretted it. I've never said, oh, that was a waste of time. If you're not feeling like going to church, go anyway. If you don't wanna go to small group, go. It's the best time to go. The best small group nights have been nights that I don't wanna go. I'm the leader and there's times I don't wanna go. I don't feel like going tonight. I wanna sit on my butt, my behind, sorry, this is church. I sit on my behind. I want to eat chips and relax, right? But, but every time I go, I'm like, God, thank you for pushing me to go. Thank you that I'm a leader and I have to go, <laughs> right? I got to go. I can't skip church if I don't feel like it. I got to come. If I don't show up, y'all gonna be like, dude, he's fired. We're getting new lead pastor. All right. I'm going off my nose a lot this morning. I'm feeling fired up. All right, here's the thing. When we don't want to serve others, we do it because we know that Jesus is worth it, right? We just do these things because, because uh, we know that Jesus is worthy of our, of our obedience, right? And we know that in that space, he, he draws near to us, right? As we draw near to him, he draws near to us. If Jesus is our prize, we'll be hungry for more of him and we'll do what it takes to have more of him, even if it means doing things that our feelings don't want to do in the moment. I believe that Jesus is raising up a hungry church. What do you all think? 2023, why not here? Why not now? Can we answer that call this morning to be a hungry people? That is God's sincere desire for our church. He wants us to make him our prize and be hungry for him. That's the main idea this morning. If you get anything, if you're taking a nap, wake up, here's the main idea. You can say you learned something at church. Jesus wants us, or Jesus wants to be our prize. That's what he wants. In, Jesus knows that that when he becomes our prize, we'll step into the lives that he's called us to live, right? We'll step into our destinies, and we'll have a joy like Paul had. Jesus knows that that making him our prize is actually the key to life. In John 10.10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, right? Jesus wants us to make him our prize because it helps us to step into flourishing, We can only flourish, truly flourish when Jesus becomes our prize. So the question this morning is this, is Jesus your prize? Is he your prize? If you don't know, just look at Paul's example and see how you're doing, right? None of us are gonna measure up to Paul, right? Let's just acknowledge that. But but use his example as something to spur you onwards. If Jesus isn't your prize yet there's hope this morning there's hope he can change that he can wake your soul up i think for that to happen we need to get a vision of him this morning or we need to see jesus paul was able to make jesus his prize because he just he saw jesus right he he knew who he was He was so smitten by Jesus. And for me, there's been several key moments in my life where I was discouraged, or I was struggling to make Jesus my prize, and then he just showed up and woke my heart up. And one of those times was the Kyle of Winter Conference during my first year as the director. This was back in 2016, this is in January of 2016. I remember just being overwhelmed by what God had called me to do. I was 22 years old. I was afraid of public speaking, yet I was preaching every week. I was afraid of raising money, yet I had to raise money. I was leading 50 to 60 students. A lot of them were my peers. Trying to figure out married life, wasn't a great husband. <laughs> Trying to figure that out. I was discouraged. And During a time of worship at that conference, I just got a vision of Jesus. I can still remember it. It's actually a vision that you know truly lines up with a vision of Jesus in Revelation. So I believe it's really from him. And, and essentially what I could see He's just fire in his eyes. Like he's looking at me, just his eyeballs, it's like fire in his eyes. I'm like, oh. After worship, I I went back to my hotel room and wrote down what happened in my phone. I said, this during worship, I got a picture of Jesus with flames for pupils, fire in his eyes. I felt like he was speaking to me saying, I'm here and you don't need to fear anything when I'm on your side. I just felt like Jesus was telling me two things, that he was passionate about me, and that he had me in his hand. I felt like he was saying, I have set you apart for this purpose. He was telling me that he's powerful. He's capable to help me figure out this whole Chi Alpha thing. It seemed like a mountain in front of me, but hey, I'll help you every step of the way. One vision of Jesus and his power and his love, it shifted my whole perspective. I was reminded that Jesus is big. He's awesome. I was doing ministry for him. He was the prize. Not a certain amount of students showing up on, on Thursday nights. No, it was for those beautiful fire-filled eyes that I was doing this. It's for Jesus. And not just that, I was, I was reminded that Jesus cared. He chose me for that. He, had, he was gonna help me. And the prize of being a successful Chi Alpha director or meeting my goals was displaced in that moment by the prize of Jesus. Instead of focusing on success, my perspective shifted to just trying to please him. He reasserted himself once again as the prize of my life and the prize of my ministry. So with that in mind, how does Jesus become our prize? How does he become our prize? Well, verse 12, it tells us very clearly. It's not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Paul says that he presses on to to make the resurrection his own because Jesus had already made him his own. In other words, he pursued Jesus because Jesus pursued him. He wanted to make Jesus his own because Jesus had already made him his own. Okay, Jesus becomes our prize when we realize that we are his prize. It doesn't start with you figuring it out. It starts with him coming after you. It starts with him putting his finger on you and saying, I want that one. I'm coming after that one in the midst of all their shame and sin, I'm coming after him. Starts there, not with anything you can do, right? He becomes our prize when, when we realize that, that Jesus made us his prize. Before Paul came to Jesus, he killed Christians. He killed them, he, he slaughtered them. But Jesus in his grace, he, he stooped down to Paul and he changed his heart. He didn't smite him or punish him, but he covered his sins and forgave him through his sacrifice on the cross. And after Paul encountered that love, he couldn't help but give his whole self to Jesus. Jesus became his prize when when he realized that he was Jesus' prize. And this morning, Jesus is calling us to make him our prize. But for that to happen, say it again. You gotta get a truth in your head. You gotta get in your heart. Jesus loves you. Jesus says, you are his prize. Even on your worst days, even on your very, very worst moments, you know your worst moments. He sees all of that. And even on your very worst days, he loves you. He's for you. He's for you. Even when you act like a chump, he's for you. Come on, somebody. He is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? That's the truth that Paul had in his heart. And that pushed him to press on. Paul knew that at the same time that he was sinful and left for dead, Jesus came after him and died in his place. And then Jesus went into a grave and came back up out of it. He knew that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Okay, so if you're here today, and if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord, today is the day. Today is your day. Trust him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. If you trust in Jesus, you will be made right with God. Give him your heart today. But it doesn't stop there. For those of us who have already accepted Jesus, for those of us who have already chosen to follow him, we need to commit to continually reminding ourselves of his love. Every day, we need to make conscious decisions to train our hearts to make Jesus our prize. And we need to tell our souls to wake up. Well, I wouldn't be wake up. It'd be wake up. (laughs) Right? We need to to engage in spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and Sabbath and community. And we need to continually remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. And we need to stoke into flame of the embers of our hearts. It's like we're throwing logs on the fire to keep burning. Right, we're throwing those logs on the fire. In John 15, just before Jesus left the earth, he emphasized the importance of this to his disciples. He told them that if they were going to go the distance in their faith, if they were going to bear fruit for him Over a lifetime, they had to remain in him. Don't just get saved. Don't just pray a prayer. Remain in me. You're not gonna be able to do anything without him. Remain in Jesus. Remain in his love. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If we want to keep the fire of our hearts burning for Jesus, if we want him to be our prize, we have to abide. We have to, uh, we have to remain in him. Jesus remains our prize when we remain in him. I don't know how we think we're gonna follow Jesus in this world when we don't do anything to spend time with him, when we don't do anything to uh, to remind ourselves of his love. We don't read our Bibles, don't pray, don't commit to community. How, How are we supposed to go the distance? The only way he's gonna be the prize of your heart is if you look at him every single day. Let's commit to this church. Let's stand up all across this room. We're gonna pray, we're gonna close. Jesus, I believe he's calling us this morning as we head into the fall, as I believe God's gonna expand the borders of our church as we go to two services, all that stuff. He's calling us to make him the prize. He's the prize. Jesus is the aim. He's the motivation. He's the goal. But if he's gonna be the prize, we have to know how much he loves us and we have to remain in him every single day. Or we have to make that commitment. So. I want to give people an opportunity. If you came in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus yet, I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes all across this room, this is just a moment between you and the Lord. You came in and you need to get right with God. Today is your day. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. And the way we do that here at St. Church is we simply have you raise a hand, just letting God know, hey, I want to be in your family and then we pray for you, right? So again, no one's looking around, but I'm going to count to three. And when I do, if you want to put your faith in Jesus or or recommit yourself to him. I want you to slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying for. One, two, three, step all across this room, all across this room. See that hand, is there anyone else? I see that hand back there, is there anyone else? Come on, people coming home to Jesus this morning. I see that hand over there. Anyone else, we got three people, amen, amen. Let's pray, so just pray with me as I pray out loud. So Lord, right now we come to you for those three souls who, who wanna put their trust in you. God, right now we celebrate that. And Lord, we just pray alongside with them a prayer of repentance, we repent for the ways we messed up. We repent for the ways we've sinned, and Lord, we accept Your sacrifice on our behalf—the uh, the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus. And God, we say with confidence and faith that Your blood is enough; nothing else can save us. Only Your blood, God. We thank You that Your blood pays the price for our sins. And God, we thank You for inviting us into Your family. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we give God praise all across the Come on, three people putting their trust in Jesus. Come on, come on. Guys, my earnest prayer right now, my earnest prayer is that more and more people will come home to Jesus in our community. In the Cedar Valley, I've just been praying every morning, like, Lord, bring more people home. Bring more people home, right? I wanna see people come to faith in Christ. All right, so what I wanna do now is if you're in this room and you just wanna make Jesus the prize of your life, I just wanna give you a chance to respond to God at the altars, we're opening up the altars right now, prayer team's up here in the corner, just come and make him your prize by by stepping out in faith and and by getting on your knees before him here at the altar. All right, I'm gonna pray for you as you come. Go ahead and start coming now. I'm gonna pray Jesus right now. I pray that you'd help us uh, to make you the prize of our hearts. And God, I pray for those that are coming to the altar. I pray that you'd meet them in a special way, not just them, but this whole church right now. God, I pray that you would meet us and move in our hearts and help us to make you our prize. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, let's worship the Lord.